We the People, Our American Story is the podcast for Americans who love America. My name is Tina McCafferty. Join me every week as I introduce you to a hero, a freedom fighter, a veteran, a warrior, an immigrant, and other inspiring Americans living their American dreams with one common thread. They love America. In this podcast, we talk about the hard things, emotional and physical scars, PTSD, real challenges, and how they not only weathered the storms, but rose above the clouds to become stronger and better. Be assured, we laugh too. What is life without a bit of humor? These stories confirm what our founding fathers believed. America is truly a special place for a special people, and you are part of this great story. We the people, our American story is your podcast. Find yourself in this space every week, a place where American values are cherished and treasured, a place where we celebrate each other, a place you belong. Operation Enduring Warrior's mission is to honor, empower, and motivate our nation's wounded military and law enforcement veterans through programs ranging from skydiving, public speaking, archery, endurance races, and much more. Honorees overcome adversity and hardship through innovation, teamwork, and perseverance. Together, our team, honorees, and supporters make up our OEW family. Operation Enduring Warrior, honoring their sacrifice. For more information, visit EnduringWarrior.org. All right, everyone, I have a doozy of an episode for you today with not one, but two special guests, Earl Granville and Johnny Lopez, OEW Warriors, and I also feature a very close and personal friend to both of them, Cindy. This is Earl and Johnny's American Story. Welcome to this week's episode of We the People, Our American Story. You are in luck today because I have a twofer for you. What I mean by that is I have two guests for the price of one today. You are going to hear the stories of Mr. Earl Granville and Mr. Johnny Lopez. Welcome, you two. Thanks for having us, Tina. We really appreciate it. The time I scheduled this, I ended up being at Johnny, so it kind of works out perfect. I have seen you two all over Facebook lately, the last few days. You've been doing some warrior stuff. Yeah, it's been a busy week. But uh, I mean, besides this, I don't know how, like if we try to plan it, it will never work out. We seem to always be at the same place at the same time. <laughs> this worked out great because I also watched the video. Earl, did you sent me the video? One of you sent me the that. video about, um, it was really cold. Oh, a Gogi class 004. Yes. So I cadred it and Johnny was a participant. I'm, That's right. I'm still mad at him. My service dog, she, husky, couldn't handle the cold. That's how cold it was out there. Yeah. And then what? like Earl was part of the cadre, which is the instructor. So his rotations were like every eight hours. And then I'm in the mountains in Vermont, starving, freezing, and he was up every eight hours like, so I can really eat a lot of steaks. Like she ate like three steaks and I'm like, I want to kill you. It was like naked and afraid, but you weren't naked. Those agogis are, are created by Spartan and a lot of them, they're about 60 hours, 60 plus hours uh, in Vermont. And what they do is build a lot of team building exercises and uh, survival skills, finding that knit and grit in yourself. And uh, I went through, mine was a lot different. It was more miles, but it was also mm -hmm. summer where his was in the winter. 
completely two different events depending yes. with the weather. I want to start at the beginning for you two with your stories. Can each of you give a short summary on why you joined the military? I was a senior in high school and my twin brother, Joe, was talking to me about uh, joining, growing up, going to punk shows, you know, playing guitar a little bit. Not really. I never thought the military was ever in my deck of cards. I always thought like, is man, work for the government? Like working for the man, you know, just my punk 17, 16 year old attitude at the time. But the incentive was college. And that's what made me join. I was making it about me, basically. Joe and I graduated high school. We landed in Fort Benning, Georgia for basic training to become infantrymen, uh, September 1st, 2001. Wow. 11 days later, I'm like, wait a second, I didn't join the military to go to war, you know? <laughs> but it was, like I said, I was making it about me. I was making it selfish reason. And I feel that later on in life while I was serving, I saw the big picture wearing the uniform and my idea of joining the military changed big time, but we could get that, that later. And Mr. Johnny, what about you? And actually something that I talked about with Earl, as we say, we end up in the same places, but it's crazy. Our paths were completely different. Um, I came in seeking the military was all I wanted to do. Despite my GT score and everything, I chose to be an infantryman. I chose to like, you know, volunteer for Airborne's program. I was following a path all the way to uh, Special Forces Selection when then I was hit by a drunk driver. Got a glimpse of the hospital in Germany, but I mainly woke up Walter Reed Army Medical Center. Somebody standing on top of me with a clipboard saying like, well, you don't look as bad as your paperwork says. So I'm like, what does my paperwork says? I had no idea what had happened. It was a different chain of events and somehow um, redefined myself. Like I found myself lost for a while because of the circumstances of my retirement. No, I didn't define with the veteran community, but like redefine myself, let go of the past circumstances. Johnny, if I may touch on your injury for a minute, I scrolled through your Facebook feed a little bit. And from what I understand, you felt guilty about being called a wounded warrior because mm -hmm. of the circumstances of your injury. You didn't think that you deserved it because it wasn't during fighting. You were in the wrong place at the wrong time. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I still don't. It's like I'm um, wanting to tell you, there is um, so many programs and so many things available. And rather than putting myself in the receiving side of it as a wounded warrior or whatever, I choose to continue to help and provide assistance however I can. Like that's the one part that I can feel that I can still be part of the community. But you lost your arm. Yes, ma'am. I forget sometimes. <laughs> <laughs> you lost it from, from where? Where is it? Um, right here, pretty high, uh, right below the shoulder. And because of the nature of the injury, losing mobility of the shoulder, it's kind of one of those like a uh, prosthetic arm is not really uh, an option because even though having a uh, myoelectric hands or whatever, without the movement of the shoulder, I couldn't do this. Your dominant arm? I'm sorry. Yes. Was it your dominant arm? No, 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 it wasn't. And then Earl, you are a wounded warrior as well. Can you tell us a little bit about your traumatic injury? I know I started off with, I joined the military strictly for college, but at the end of the day, I was told to go to Bosnia with Joe. And then we did that easy deployment. The time I was there, 2002, 2003, a lot different than your time in Bosnia, mm -hmm. which was the beginning of the conflict. We were national guard 
came home. I started getting that education. We get a volunteer, get a warning order for Iraq, but it was a volunteer mission. I wasn't going to go, but Joe decided to volunteer and that made me volunteer. And that was, to me, that was a big picture of wearing that uniform of going to Iraq and the experiences we had over there becoming an NCO. I saw the big picture. Like I enjoyed leading. I enjoyed working with the younger guys and I was learning as I went forward. I loved it so much. I read my contract well over there. And then um, Joe did as well. Came home, got my education, graduated with an associate's degree. Then I volunteered for Afghanistan. Joe stayed back. He begged me not to go, but I went anyway. On this deployment, I lost my leg from a roadside bomb, uh, June 3rd, 2008. And more tragically, on that day, two of my buddies got killed. Specialist Derek Holland of Wingap, Pennsylvania, and Major Scott Haggerty of Stillwater, Oklahoma. And Major Haggerty took my seat that day. So it's why I'm still here right now. That term, wounded warrior, it's like, Yes, I am a wounded warrior, I guess, but I try not to use those terms just out of my preference. I'm a public speaker now, and I discuss healthy ways of battle adversity. And as we're moving forward, I want to let their military services not have to define who they are for the rest of their life. Like, I'm no longer Staff Sergeant Earl Granville in the 109th Infantry. I'm just Earl. You know, that's it, and that's all it is. That's something we can discuss later, becoming reborn finding that new purpose after we take the uniform off. Understand it's good to have pride in what we've learned in our time in service and what we've done, but it doesn't have to define us. We don't want that pride to turn into self-ego because that self-ego causes us to self-destruct. All right. Here are the next questions for you. For both of you, where you served, what all your deployments were, how long you had been serving when you were injured, how you were after the injury and how you overcame those obstacles of maybe feeling sorry for yourself and I don't want to do this anymore. That's a lot. But can one of you start off with that? Joined the military uh, summer of 1996 and first deployment was uh, late 97 or the winter. I was with the first infantry division, Big Red One. Back in the mid-90s, late-90s, we were stationed in Germany and we did multiple rotations through Kosovo, Bosnia, Macedonia, uh, pretty much um, our missions were sort of like a peacekeeping mission in our nation's patrol line. Stop a lot of uh, weapons trafficking, things like that. I stayed in the military for an additional probably two years after my injury. I was at Walter Reed and for whatever reason, I wasn't ready. It wasn't about the retirement. I wanted to remain in the military. That was a wake-up call. I signed up to do one thing, which was infantry. And the idea of, I don't know why, but I, I thought I would be able to somehow get into a shape that I could to go back to my unit. But the reality was that if I would have remained in the military, there was another path, which was an admin path, a sitting behind a desk, probably taking notes. And that's not what I wanted. So from there, I guess that's when like the real troubles began. The military is very good as far as uh, helping you transition into a civilian world. Their main path is through education. And um, my mind wasn't there. So like I had just lost my military career. Now I went to college. I felt every single class, like every single one of them. What am I going to do with my life? Um, honestly, say at that point, I really didn't, I don't want to say associate, but I wasn't really involved with the veteran community. From there on, I mean, it's a long story. Your pain pill addiction. The cliche of how to hit rock bottom to come back up again. Did you become addicted to those because of the pain or was it also a way to 
check out? So to be honest, I didn't even recognize addiction until I tried to stop taking them. Like I will, I will take them as prescribed. From the moment that I was in the hospital, I remember, I don't, I don't know what was the initial dosage, but I will take a large amount of uh, Percocets to push through. So like besides losing my arm, I had multiple fractures on my left leg. I had to have seven surgeries to save it. I will push through a lot of those to like get back on my feet. I mean, like the injuries in my leg, believe it or not, were one of the best things that could have happened because waking up missing a limb, I probably should have felt bad about it. But um, the fact that they were fighting for my leg kind of kept my focus on my leg. So I'm like, all right, no point in crying over the arm. It's not going to grow. So let's focus on this leg. Let's get back up. Let's get walking. So I think I um, I masked all the pain that you have to go through in rehab and all the surgeries with the medication. It was a progressive thing. I think it was like eight years, seven, eight wow. years that I was taking them. And I can tell you my final dosage was uh, 340 milligram oxycontins a day. So I'll take one in the morning, one at noon and one at night. And then they gave me uh, six Percocets, the milligrams that they were for breakthrough pain. So like on my refill bottles were 90 Oxycontins and 180 Percocets. That was a monthly, a monthly supply. When I had my kids, like everyone told me about like, you know, it's going to destroy your liver or anything. I didn't care. When I had my children, I really, for the first time, care about 10 or 15 years down the road is that I said, you know what? I'm not going to take these. And that was an awakening moment because when I decided to stop taking them is when I saw that I couldn't stop taking them. That was a pretty intense battle. Eight years. Mm-hmm. Wow. Earl, what about you? Uh, like I said before, I joined in 2000, you know, still in high school. You know, being in the guard, we were training before we even go to basic training. We just go to our drill weekends. I got wounded in 2008 and I medically retired in 2010. This is like nine years and two months total, I believe, like that. I got to say, my time at Walter Reed, I felt like it was maybe it was a little different than Johnny's because you got to remember the time I was there was 2008. The wounded veteran is just praised like, oh, my God, you lost your limb in Afghanistan. So all these politicians, all these celebrities that want to come visit the troops. You know, it's nice. And so many organizations are reaching out that want to help veterans be active. I learned how to play sled hockey while I was down there. I learned how to snowboard once again, a special prosthetic leg. They shipped me out to Vail, Colorado for that. I think my experience is a lot different than Johnny's just because we're on this pedestal because of the nature of how society is looking at us at the time. Now, I still go to Walter Reed for prosthetics. I was just there last week and it's a ghost town and that's a good thing. But I can imagine somebody going through a situation like this, their experience is a lot different than mine was because there's men and women around me everywhere going through the same exact thing. So you build those relationships quite a bit with everybody. And I feel like maybe Johnny didn't have that type of experience because, you know, your injury was... Before, well, during the attack of Iraq. Before. So, like, when people were coming in, I was living. Okay. Walter started getting bombarded. It was, like, after 03, 04. Right. So you can imagine, like, the culture of Walter Reed being a lot different from his time and my time. I think with uh, the pill situation, I was on long-acting morphine uh, short acting morphine, clonopin, Zoloft, what's that, Ambien, the stuff that makes you sleep. So many. And I just listen to what my doctor tells me. And this is what time I'm supposed to take it, right? And then um, the issue, though, is one weekend I forgot. I left Walter Reed for a four-day pass and I forgot my meds. I didn't even think about it until I got to where I was going at the beach. I felt fine. 
right? Like, oh, I'm not in pain. So I guess I don't need this stuff anymore. Now you got to remember, I lost my leg at 24. So I'm just an ignorant, dumb kid. I feel like at the time. So like, I'm not in pain. I don't need these meds anymore, right? Well, the time I got back to Walter Reed, I'm like sweating. I'm freezing and it's May or June. And I'm not putting two and two together. I thought I was just sick. But this feeling of being sick, I've never felt before. So I missed my appointment with my case manager. She called me and she says, you know, you missed our appointment. I was like, I'm sorry, ma'am. I'm just under the weather. She said, well, what are your symptoms? And I told her all that. She's like, you think you could get to me right now before the end of the day? So I jumped in my wheel. I didn't even want to put my leg on. I jumped in my wheelchair and I wheeled down to her. And she's like, so when's the last time you took your meds? I forgot them and I haven't taken them in four days. So I figured I didn't need them. And she said, you're going through withdrawal. And I'm like, what do you mean? I, I, I think addiction is like, I need my pills. I need that fix. I need that. You know what I mean? I, I, that is being young and just ignorant completely to it. That's what I thought addiction was. Okay. Like if I was addicted, I'd make sure those pills were in my vehicle before I left. Or if I realized they were gone, I would, I'd go back and get them. You're going through a physical withdrawal, not a mental withdrawal is how she explained it to me. So we ended up just weaning off them. It, uh, it just kind of blew my mind a little bit, the idea that uh, all these pills that I feel like medical and doc, now I'm talking to all different doctors as well. It's like nobody's doing their homework to see this doctor's giving them this, so maybe I shouldn't give them that. And I think that's a big problem in the military. I think it's society in general, but we see it at the VA as well, this government healthcare. So I, I feel that's a, a situation that has to be brought up. There's times at Walter Reed, like I said before, there's so many people around me. Okay, like, uh, you know, other men and women situations like this, we build relationships, we're going to ball games at the uh, Washington Nationals, hitting the bars downtown DC, just enjoying life. We're all in our 20s. So it's like, what are we going to do? Doctors all said, no, don't drink on your medications. And I just think to myself, we're invincible. Yeah, we're going to do it. I'm not saying people should do that, but it's going to happen. Let's be real. Once in a while, somebody wants to show up at physical therapy the next day. Twice it happened. Somebody want to show up in physical therapy, physical therapist calls their chain of command because you still have a chain of command, even though you're a patient. Chain of command gets tries to get a hold of them. They don't pick up their phone. They go to the barracks. They knock on their door. They don't pick up. What do you think is going to happen now? Chain of command has to go get the master key. They unlock the door. And unfortunately, they're deceased. And what happened? They accidentally OD'd on their meds with alcohol. And I, I'm not going to point the finger just at the patient and saying you have to be careful but also i feel like when it comes to you know medical professions i feel like there's a better way to do it instead of just throwing all these four alternatives and i'm not going to say it here than just pills that's all i'm going to say about it that's all i'm going to say about it but it's that's just my opinion how was it coming off the medication then for both of you how long did that take where you felt like okay i can do this without the medication um, for myself, I just started to wean off it and it took a little while, but I felt like it wasn't a struggle. Like every week I'd go a lower dose, lower dose. And now I'm don't take it anymore. That was it. I felt like I got lucky with that. Yeah. In my case, I think also because of the amount of years that I was taking it, it was really hard after pretty much that slippery slope that I went down through, I attempted suicide in December, 2010 unsuccessful and I ended up at a VA hospital. I was under uh, residential treatment, three-month treatment over there. And uh, that's kind of how I reconnected with the veteran community. I see people that share the same struggles. 
But um, when I got out of the VA, honestly, I have family in South America. I left. And at this point, I still was still, even after everything, because uh, I did the suicide by taking the 90 Oxycontins. Yeah, I didn't have the stomach for the 180. They were too big. And I thought 90 OCs will do their job. And when I got out, they were still sort of giving me medication, even down to like methadone. Like, so like, it was the same thing. So anyways, I went on vacation, what it was supposed to be two weeks in South America. And when I got over there, what I did was I didn't have an option how to get it. I removed the opportunity to get it because here in the States, and this wasn't just because I'm not going to say this is a veteran's problem, you know, because it's a nationwide problem, as we have seen that, you know, the use of Oxycontin and opiates have swept the country. So like it was something that you can get legally, illegally. I mean, like it was as easy as going to the ER and just manifesting your pain to, for you to get it. So when I was in South America, it wasn't much different. I was in pain. I tried to go to a doctor. I mean, I speak Spanish fluently and I'm, I don't know what Percocets are or Oxycontin. So I go with like morphine. Do you guys have morphine? And like the pharmacist will look at me like, what are you having surgery? What do you mean you need morphine? You know, like that's not something that is has been normalized over there, like it's been over here. Boy, that says a lot. I didn't yeah. know that. And there is a lot of countries, like if you see, like in Germany, they never like legalized the sale of oxycons. They're opiates, they are actually class one narcotics, like you know, they're right next to synthetic heroin morphine and all these type of things they're giving to you to have surgery or something like that it's like under doctors here i am over there kind of like we'll translate that can i get morphine and they're looking at me like you want what i guess i went through it the ugly way i went to the withdrawals i went through everything everything that he mentioned i like literally wet the sheets just in sweat because i was in bed just shaking but there was no way that I could just jump in my car and go to the VA. It just doesn't exist out there. So like, I just got through it. One day the sun was shining a little bit different, kind of like, let me go outside for a walk. And then I went to the mountain, I went for a hike. And the following day I went for a little bit longer and a little bit longer until kind of like, like everything is going to pass. Like it sucked, but like every day was a little bit easier. Interesting. Well, I never thought I would be grateful to say that narcotics make me so sick. There's no <laughs> way that I could ever get addicted to those. If they give those to me after surgery, I say I don't want them because they just make me throw up. I guess I should be grateful <laughs> for that. So, this is the thing. We um we worked with a guy, really cool guy, Bo. He was the head for this uh, lab. And what they were trying to do is blood analysis in either all soldiers or patients. One of the main things was for the story of pain medication. Why? How is it that the same medication, some get addicted, some more ones. We all have a different metabolism system. So like in, let's say in my case, it might process it in a certain way, but somebody else takes it and it gets sick. So like, it's very dangerous that the standard for the entire population is the same. It's kind of like an error and trial team. It's kind of like, all right, we're going to give you this. If it doesn't work, then we try something else. And if it doesn't work, we try something else. Just to go away from the war, it's not just addiction because addiction, yeah, the case is relatable to whatever, but it's a physical dependency. That's what you create. Is uh, for what I have studied because I became fascinated by it because after it happened to me, I couldn't understand how your body alone, like even if the medication is working correctly, so your body's like, oh, okay, so you already have the chemical that's taking care of pain. They shut down the factories. You know that like whatever your body is supposed to produce to manage your pain 
stops. So the day that you stop taking that medication, it's kind of like you're calling all the factory workers to come back to start making this thing. And it's, it's a very horrible feeling. How did you both come across Operation Enduring Warrior? What was your journey to that? You know, OEW saved my life, flat out. A little bit more about my story. Two and a half years later, after losing my leg, more tragedy happens. Like I said, my twin brother, Joe, asked me not to join or volunteer for Afghanistan. Well, when I lost my leg, I uh, received a phone call. It was a week before Christmas in 2010. And OEW will tie into this later. You know, the way how my story is at this point, I joined the military for me. What can I get out of this? I went to Iraq, saw the big picture. It's not about me. It's about us. And then a week before Christmas in 2010, I'm getting ready for a black tie event. I get out of the shower. I put my suit pants on and my prosthetic and just a shirt before I get fully dressed. I'm doing my hair in front of the mirror. The phone rings. I let go to voicemail finish doing my hair, wash the hair gel out, look at my phone, see as my mom, listen to the voicemail, says, you need to call me immediately. And she's distraught. And then uh, I give her a call and she's crying on the other end. And I said, mom, what's the matter? While on active duty, my twin brother, Staff Sergeant Joe Graham will commit suicide. How can I get this second chance at life and have my own twin brother take his away? At this point, my career is gone in the military. I lost my leg. And now my twin brother takes his life and I have absolutely no direction. My mindset went right back to making it all about me. Just like when I first joined the military, but in a more toxic, negative way. Like I was that guy who was Uncle Rico on Napoleon Dynamite. Napoleon Dynamite is the best, right? In fact, my kids <laughs> always make fun of when Napoleon is given the llama the food. And you know the llama's name. It's Tina. The food, Tina. <laughs> I didn't think about that. <laughs> yeah. They get a big kick out of that. <laughs> I was Uncle Rico. Anybody out there, if you haven't seen the movie, he's 40 years old and he does not stop talking about his football glory days in high school. And that was me just talking about my glory days in the military. You know what I did for my country? You know, but really the world doesn't owe me shit. There was nothing beyond where I was at. And that's why I talked about it in the beginning of when I said like wounded warrior. It's like, yes, I'm a wounded warrior, but like that's never my title or anything like that. It's just something that happened in my life. It, reality, that's what it is. What's next though? What is next? Uncle Rico never did that. I was never doing that as well. <laughs> at that time of my life. But where this ties in with OEW, I learned from my brother's wife, Stephanie. Uh, her and I built very good friendship in Joe's kids. And she would tell me that Joe was very proud of things I was accomplishing after I lost my leg. Like I was very active. I stopped doing that when Joe died. Um, I was just going downhill, uh, drugs and other bad things I won't mention. <laughs> but I learned a lot, you know, if anything, they helped me grow back on the bad things that in these decisions I was making. But Learning how Joe was proud of me being active pushed me to push myself more. You know, I got a running blade. I started running 5Ks and just started making these leaps and bounds. And my first ever Spartan race was in the summer of 2013 in a place called Wintergreen, Virginia. And there's these men and women in uniform with little backpacks on and uh, before the start of the race. And like, who are these guys, right? One of them comes off with his hand out and he wants to shake hands. 
And I look up and he says, hey, are you Earl? And I look at him and I'm like, oh my God, you're Noah Galloway. And I went to go shake his hand and I fangirled a little bit. And for anybody out there, Noah, his story is he served in the 101st Airborne, lost his left arm and his left leg, left leg identical to my amputation while in Iraq. What Noah has went on to go accomplish ever since that injury in 2005 is Noah's on the cover of Men's Health Magazine and he was on Dancing with the Stars after losing an arm and a leg in Iraq. So like, I know who this dude is. I fangirl. Like, yeah, holy shit. You know, like, and uh, like I follow him on social media and I'm like, that's kind of where I want to be someday. You know what I mean? Not let this define who I am and push myself. And he was in uniform. And I said, no, what are you doing? He's like, we're an organization, Operation Enduring Warrior. And OEW's mission is to honor, empower, and motivate wounded and disabled veterans to stay active, not let their injuries define who they are. Our honorees, they're going to define themselves. Right before we got to the starting line, I was introduced to the rest of the team and those little backpacks they had in a secluded area. They pulled out a gas mask and they donned it. Rockstar status, man. So I ran alongside the team. Totally just beat the crap out of me. I was their honoree for the day. They were helping me get through a Spartan race. And then Noah asked me after the race, what do you think about joining the organization? And I'm like, my God, I, I, I don't know if I'm ready for something like that. But if Noah's asking me to join, I look at that as if I follow the Chicago Bulls my whole life. And I'm playing a pickup game, some street game somewhere. Michael Jordan just rolls up and ask if I could be on his team. You don't turn that shit down. You know what I mean? So I trained my ass off because you don't just join the team. You have to earn it. I trained my ass off and I went through Indoc. And um, yeah, I joined in uh, beginning of 2014. Now, like I said, as an honoree, OEW helped me get through a Spartan race. But that wasn't, I feel, and I say this with respect, that wasn't what turned my life around. Turning my life around was actually earning a spot on that team because my mindset now here, I have responsibility for men and women in situations like this, helping them reach their physical goals. And it made me think just like that Iraq deployment, this isn't about me. Once again, it's about us being a part of a team, being a part of something bigger than yourself and the responsibility and being a mentor for some of these men and women just pushed me to realize I can't let this bullshit and this adversity define who I am. I didn't realize at the time, but it started filling in those gaps when I had to take that uniform off. Johnny. Johnny. Well, a few years after 2015 Christmas, I was uh, taking my kids to New York City and decided to stop at Walter Reed. Want to kind of like show them where, I guess technically my last duty station, if you want to say, was. They were in the Boy Scouts and their Christmas project was doing some sort of uh, Christmas ornaments. So we um, we had the whole troops making stuff, whatever. On my way to Walter Reed, someone reached out to me. Back then, you have to admit your own flaws. So like I replaced one addiction with another one. So when I got out of the pills, I just dove in the gym. Like it's kind of like you have to keep your mind occupied. Guy reached out to me, you know, as I was going to Walter Reed, he goes like, you look like a tough guy. How about a workout? And I'm like, Oh my God, who is this guy? I'm going to go put on him. One of my best friends, Rick Colbert. I get to Walter Reed. I do what I had to do. And then I'm trying to find the gym where he tells me I'm, I'm kind of like lost out there because it's a city. But that's it's a city within a city. He goes, do you see a guy in a wheelchair <laughs> doing a wheelie downhills? Just follow him to the gym. 
<laughs> so I ended up following them. Um, so let me tell you something about Operation Enduring Warrior before that. Uh, of course, I knew who they were. The mission was not clear. Why? Because if you go to social media or any channel, what you see is a group of badass soldiers like doing badass shit. It's kind of like, wait a second. So you're going up here with one leg carrying a chain and a center block with a gas mask. Anything else? Are you commando? You know? <laughs> so I knew who they were, but it's not something that I would approach. Like I really thought this is like SEAL Team 7, born on a Saturday, let's go do this, you know? When I saw these were the guys, I'm like, holy crap, this is who they are. Uh, Rick, honestly, is the one that I had to thank for this. He took care of like down to like my paperwork. He got me involved into going to the first race where I was an honoree. And I'm going to tell you, I love that story. Like my first race, the coolest thing that could have ever happened happened, which is we're entering the race. Um, they have a guy carrying the flag in the front, uh, two or four maths athletes in front of me than we were, and then the rest of the team. So in front of me, there is a mascot. I can say his name because he wasn't in a uniform. And then um, he ends up tripping on, a, on the prosthetic leg on something and just... It's it. Combat rolls. <laughs> yeah. He just falls, like straight up falls, rolls twice, you know? Right in front of me. And the rest of the team, whether it is the lender hand, he got back up and he kept moving forward. And like I would say, that was the coolest thing that I could ever see because that image of SEAL team numbers 15 and a half, you know, doing badass shit, whatever, it was broken. I was like, these guys are just like we are. They're human, you know, they have whatever. They fall down, they get back up. So that was the coolest thing that I could have seen. From there on, I honestly, like, uh, I was in pretty good physical shape. The obstacle course was a playground. We had a blast. I finished and I was like, how does this work? Do I buy a mask? Do you guys give me a mask? And everybody started laughing. They're like, you know when it's time, you know? Because it's a, it's a process to earn it, which is one of the coolest things. It's not given, like you have to earn it. Yeah, that's, that's, that, I think that's the magic of OEW. And we have so many volunteers that aren't even masked athletes that you just sign up as a volunteer. And they're, I feel, just as important as the masked athlete team when it comes to helping our honorees. But uh, for myself, just that personal goal of becoming a map is what turned my life around. Mm -hmm. and, and the physical life I live right now, uh, OEW has a huge impact in these goals that I've made after earning my gas mask, you know, as an individual standpoint. I didn't realize all the services that they offered. I spoke to Frank Fields. Do you both know who he is? He was my last guest, Frank Fields. And he is going, I think he said to Florida to learn how to be a life coach and OEW is doing that for him. Oh yeah. Warrior voice. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And yes. I had no idea that it extended to things like that. OEW, tell me some of the services they offer. Well, let me tell you, I've been uh, lucky enough to be involved in so many of them. Each one of them is going to reach out the individual's needs. Like for instance, Something I can tell you from military service is it doesn't matter, you know, like what you did, always be some obnoxious airborne guy <laughs> in the room telling everybody that a nasty leg is part of our culture. It's kind of like 
I that's how we do in the military. Yeah, it's like, <laughs> we're, we're in the military. It's like, once you're a paratrooper, you're like, ew, your dirty leg, you know? So when I got out of the military, it's not just losing my military career and all the changes that I went through. It was constantly looking up, wanting to jump out of a plane again. And uh, that was one of the achievements. So that's one of the programs, Skydive. When I, in process with OEW, they have all these check marks. So would you like to do this? Would you like to do that? And it says Skydive. And I'm like, look left, look right. I'm like, check. When they call me for it, I'm like, they know I have one arm. And I'm saying this because when I got out of the military, I wanted to go jump. I went to a place. Guy kind of like looked at me. He's like, well, hey, you're not certified. I thought being a part of troopers, you can be the <laughs> one. You would think that you would be certified, right? Yeah, exactly. That's what I thought. I'm like, I call him a dirty leg and I walked out. But, <laughs> but like, I thought I wouldn't be able to jump. But, and then like the guy, not in a mean way, but like he did say, he's like, and you have one arm. How did you plan, plan, plan to control your fall on your dirty leg? Did you say, I'll yeah. figure it out on I'll the way down? I'll figure it out there. Let me jump and I'll figure it out. Yeah, you know, you know. 8,000 feet in the air, I'll figure yeah. it out, all right? It's OEW, all about actually. liability, Johnny. Yeah, yeah. So like the OEW, they actually, um, that was, that is my main thing. And that's why after that, I became the program manager for skydiving is I love flying. I mean, I think in the past three and a half years, four years that I've been certifying, we're talking about one year of COVID, I am nearly at 500 jumps. I jump every time I have a chance. Yeah, I'm constantly jumping. Like what that is- What does that mean to be certified? So when I say certified, like, so OEW is not taking you on a weekend kumbaya circle, let's go strap you to somebody and jump out of a plane and take a picture. They are taking care of your training to become a license. So you will be jumping on your own. For people like me that has a physical disability, once again, trying to achieve this without the organization would be nearly impossible because before I even do my first jump, I would have to go on and spend eight to ten thousand dollars purchasing a modified parachute for a sport that I have never done to see if I like it or not. Mm-hmm. So they pretty much take care of all the leg work. Yeah, safety first. You know, they send us to endless hours of tunnel training. So you pretty much you learn how to fly before you even jump out of a plane. Right. Liability. Yeah, familiar <laughs> with those air tunnels? What are they called? I mm-hmm. I fly. You see them off the highway throughout my travels, and it's just like a huge wind tunnel. You sit there and you float in learning your your movements mm-hmm. like how to turn left how to turn right how to roll and once you get all those movements underway then you start jumping out of out of the plane learning those movements as you're dropping ten thousand feet from the sky you have instructors right there alongside you who've done this millions and millions of times watching you see how when you when you deploy your chute it's a very interesting to go through the program mm-hmm. but that was my cup of tea or my glass of whiskey. That's what really gets me going. But like, there's such a variety of different programs. Like, like uh, Earl and I, we attended to the initial, to the first training class for Warriors Voice, which is uh, taught by Lieutenant Colonel Scott Mann. Amazing guy. He, uh, he pretty much was, I don't know how to say it, but he's the one that changed the, the SOP for special forces and how to, approach the villages you know and gain the trust of everybody so he's the guy that taught us how to do public speaking so like when we went to that program we brought an honoree at the beginning i second guessed my decision i'm like was this the right person to bring to a public speaking because she's very reserved uh she was in the fort hood shooting back in 20 no it was 2009 but remember the fort hood shooting it was that incident. Yes. So at the end of the 
it's like a three-day seminar here in Florida. The end of the three-day seminar, she finally shared her story, however long, whatever. But like she told us one thing that was so powerful because it's like it was in 2019 that we did it, and the shooting was in 20, 2009 because it was 10 years. So I mean, you know, the past 10 years, I have been questioned about these events by the defense attorneys, by the prosecutor, by uh, mental health because of the events to everything. I have never had the opportunity to share the story in my own words, you know, without having to answer it to somebody. So like that was a win. Like ever since, I mean, Scott has been pretty much the lead, the lead for Warrior's Voice. And the program is not make you Tony Robbins is his name. There is is not the point is not to become the, this professional public speaker and you're gonna go out there and whatever. It might be in your living room, but it might, it just teaches you the structure of how to own your story. Because one of the most important things is like, you have to own it and you have to tell it. Because if you don't, the moment that somebody meets you, they're going to create their own narrative in, in their head. Happens to me all the time. Like you see the injury, they, some, they automatically make a story that fits their narrative. And then like, when I tell them like, no, I wasn't by a drunk driver, then you have to deal with the face of disappointment. Like, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, my story is not as cool as whatever you made up in your head, you know? It happens to everyone. Like I talked about it like with Earl all the time. When I first met him, yeah, I'm guilty too. I made my narrative, like, you know, there's this guy kicking cans in Afghanistan. In reality, and as you heard from the story, like, you know, the leg is the least of what had made him who he is, you know? Like you have to like, learn about Joe and learn about everything else. But we create our own narrative. It's like, yeah, since so many people missing a leg, and I'm like, yeah, some more guy kicking cans, you know? That's a big goal of Jeremy Scarlow's. I'm working with him. Mm-hmm. He's an uh, awesome guy. Yeah. yeah. He wants to bring more of your stories. He's trying to get more people to come on my podcast, but he's struggling a little bit with people that are reluctant to tell their stories. They're scared. What are they scared you know, of? Tina, I'll... Uh... I think we should give a, you mentioned his name, Rick Kohlberg. I think he's got an amazing story. Yes. One of our teammates in OEW. Um, he's not on Facebook. You can find him on Instagram. You can say we even called you, talk about I'll give you yeah. his number. Why do you think some of you are hesitant to share your story? Why, well, why are I they think, afraid? I think at the right time. I remember the first time I was ever asked to tell my story. And now I make a living in front of people telling my story as a public, professional public speaker. But in the beginning, I was just like, I remember, you want me to get up there and do what? Like it was just, I was just so hesitant. And then um, first time I actually did it, no training, no nothing. And my audience was blue collar corrections officers. So I didn't wear a suit and tie. I was just went in there. It was just a big goofball to them with a message. And it was so well received that the Bureau of Prison System started networking me everywhere. And then they pay you to do this. And here I am now. I, I got some training with Scott Mann to rough up my story, to kind of polish up my story. And I think if more people could see the benefit of what it does, because what it's done for me, and it's not the paycheck that I benefit from, for me, I feel like sometimes I get more out of this than my audience. It's a little bit of therapeutic getting out there and telling your story. And um, I think initially getting out there and talking about it and or recording it, even for the whole world to see, there could be a little anxiety there. I can understand that. So, but I think once you get out of that comfort zone, and see the benefits of it, how you Go. feel of it, you might see something a lot different. I think, um, honestly, A, yes, uh, a little bit of training might be required, but like once you see, like, like with anything, with a diet, uh, any changes in your lifestyle, when you see results is when, I don't want to say you get um, inspired to continue to do it. Post my graduation through Operation During Warrior, 
we go through a little interview, not just everything that you don't in the physical part. They conduct an interview. And I remember at this point, remember all this is designed to pretty much peer out the week or the, the one that is not ready. And they told me, they brought up the, the nature of my injury. They're like, so you're gonna work in a veteran community doing all this. And how do you think you're gonna fit in not being combat wounded? And I was like, I'll figure out along, along the way. The past five years, I discovered that what I thought once was my weakness is sort of like my biggest strength right now. Like how many times have we gone to a warrior transition unit when in reality, yes, our country was at war for 20 years and there is plenty of combat wounded, but you know how many people are sitting in a warrior transition unit because of terminal illnesses, uh, just life, cancer, like you name it. There's all circumstances that have brought their career to an end. And like at some point I'm able to relate. That's one of the things I'm very thankful for, for OEW because like we don't discriminate. Like, you know, like it's kind of like you serve as long as you serve honorable, honorably, you know? you are welcome into this community. Like, you know, like a lot of our guys are not even discharged. They're still active duty in the military. A lot of our guys are still active duty. It's the opportunity to be part of something greater. And that apply, that is a two-sided knife. Because the same thing, like even when we're going through induct, it's not like, well, I'm missing a leg. No, you're still doing the walk. No, you're still doing the this. You're still doing the rock. You apply for this job. This is the ultimate equal opportunity. And you know, I, I'm glad you brought that up, Johnny, about the idea of being combat wounded or not combat wounded. Like, Johnny lost his arm when a drunk driver hit him. I lost my leg in Afghanistan. Besides that little purple heart that I received, what's the difference? You know what I mean? Adversity is adversity, no matter how it happens. And mine might look a little more Hollywood, but I feel like that shouldn't dismay johnny's uh adversities and i feel like that's just a something that i feel like society i wish it would get more an idea of look i mean look at rick for example there's so many um other people out there that i feel like their stories need to be told but maybe how society looks at them because it's not hollywood like that they might be pushed aside and to my opinion it's like hey don't look at the purple heart look at what they've gone through and how they've overcame it. Does that make sense? Yes. I actually read a quote. I wish I would have read it 10 years ago, but like it was the last couple of months and it was amazing because it's like, it's that whole thing of comparison. So it's like, you're laying in the hospital and you're missing a leg, right? But in the room next to you, there is a guy that is missing too. That, you know, we're always being told like, oh, when you're there, you see some other people that are in different and in worse conditions and, you know, it's okay, you're still missing a leg. You're still allowed to endure your pain. You're still allowed to like, you know, like it's not a comparison to, you know, like, well, that one is worse. So like mine doesn't count or that one, right, right. different circumstances. Adversity is adversity, no mm -hmm. matter if it's something small or something big. Something big to somebody might mentally, they can handle it well, but something small to somebody else, they might handle it 10 times worse than that person dealing with something big, right? Now it's always important to have a perspective in your mind, but that doesn't always. mean you need to, you should dismay your own adversity. Does that make sense? And Earl, you answered a question, I think that I was going to ask, oh. but I want to see if you want to add to it. What sure. is the benefit of people hearing your stories? Well, I, I think a lot of it is perspective as well. And like I said, you should never dismay or dismiss your adversity. Okay. I think there's two ways we could handle it. One good, one bad. The good way would be, hmm, you know, after hearing that and seeing what they went through, 
I think I feel it should help me overcome what I've dealt with. Now, the bad way to look at it, I feel like, would be somebody hearing somebody's unique story and how they've overcame their stuff, where they then look at themselves and says, man, I must be a little bitch and just can't get through this shit. You know what I mean? That's I mean, you me. laugh, but I feel like, <laughs> but, I, but I feel like when it comes to heavy stuff, people don't compare. Perspective is one thing, comparing, no. Put a perspective into it, but never compare. We try to say, see, see that over there? That means you should suck it up. Sometimes I think mentally as society, not just veterans, I think society in general, people don't want to hear that. Instead of saying, see that, suck it up. I think a better way to approach things is like, if you have to tell somebody that, maybe a loved one, it's like, okay, let's take the tools that we've just learned and let's get through this together. Not saying, see that? No, you go suck it up and drive off. You laugh, but I truly believe that. That little bit, being a leader and saying, go suck it up and drive out, that's not leadership. Okay, leadership would be, we got tools now, man. Let's get you where you need to be. To me, that's leadership. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. No, I get that because when I get through speaking to all of you, I usually am on a high for the rest of the day because it really inspires me. And then at the same time, I've got this little thing in the back of my head that's saying, well, geez, if uh, Earl can do this with one leg, if Johnny can do this with one arm, what's my excuse? Well, that's perspective. That's Mm -hmm. different than saying, man, I must really suck at life because I can't figure my stuff out. That's not going to get you anywhere. You see see the difference there? See the dialogue difference? Perspective. And like when you look at it from the outside, I'm not going to lie guilty of that one for a really long time um i raised my children alone for the past 10 years there was a point when i remember there are many girls like oh my god you're taking care of your kids alone that is so admirable and blah 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 and in reality i'm retired from the military you know like i have the means to like be with them and take them to school and pick them up and everything like for me when i see adversity like i admire is that single mom that has to get up and make a sandwich, pack it, take the kids to school, go to work, come back home, spend time with them and go to sleep. You know, like that is truly like, you know, like for me, as I say, my eyes dealing with adversity. I'm like, missing an arm is easy. I don't get to clap too much, but like. (laughs) You're happy to know it, ladies and gentlemen. Yeah, but besides that, you know, (laughs) now, now I can say it. Now, years after I can say it. If uh, losing an arm was the price that I had to pay to be able to be present on my children's life, like you know, it wasn't too much of a price. And in reality, it's an opportunity that very few have today. Like even in a conventional household, nowadays mom is not home with the kids. It's like you know, these kids are barely see the presence of their the presence of their parents. And as I said, that being very lucky. So like. Talk about adversity, it's a point of view. Like, because like I see people and like I see regular day, everyday moms or dads or grandparents or whatever it is, you know, like tackling on what life is throwing at them and choosing to wake up the next day and do it. That is facing adversity. You know, you don't have to be missing a limp or I don't know, Hollywood cool story for you to like put yourself in that position. Earl and Johnny, what is the connection that you two have? I see you on Facebook doing your races together. You obviously enjoy each other's company, laughing at each other's corny jokes. What is that connection? How did that start? 
Connection is he lives in tropical weather pretty much. He stole my fucking winter jacket. All right. Like that bastard. Like, he uses you. He uses you for your bedroom, Johnny. Your extra bedroom. Yep. <laughs> this guy is we're we're training up in Illinois in January, and Johnny is getting on a plane the next day to go to Malibu, California. California. And um, he notices my winter jacket. He's like, oh, like your jacket. I was like, Oh, thanks. The next morning I get up, he's already gone. And I'm like, hey, any of you guys see my jacket? And he's like, oh, Johnny took it. I'm like, to what, California, dude? Like, it was 73 degrees out there. <laughs> yeah. That is cold, isn't it? Yeah, it was January. It was 73 degrees. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think it's unique because Johnny and I, we've, we've been teammates in OEW for so long. We've been on uh, NBC show, Spartan Ultimate Team Challenge together. Uh, we've ran Spartan's Honor Series, which is about half a dozen races throughout the year at military venues where we'll come and speak to the troops. Johnny talked me into swimming from Alcatraz to San Francisco and then running seven miles called to biathlon. What they call it? Yeah. yeah, biathlon called uh, Escape from Alcatraz. I've never swam since I lost my leg. And here I am jumping out of a boat in a wetsuit like, what the fuck did I get into, man? <laughs> I have to much. interrupt for a second, though. You talk about swimming, and I don't want to say difficult because you probably wouldn't like me to say that. But I don't know if you'll argue about this, but what is more challenging, swimming <laughs> with one arm or swimming with one leg? Oh, it's... I look, it's all one. You swim with your legs. Let's be real. Next time you're in a pool, just put your arms down and kick your legs. All right. You're going to move. You're going to do the same. You don't move your legs and you move your arms, but who's going to win that race? So I got this special prosthetic leg. Race. Does it have a flipper on it? Yeah, it has a flipper on it. And there's a button on it to make the leg, you know, because you're, your feet are straight like this. And there's a button to make a foot straight like that with a flipper. I said to Johnny, I didn't use it until the day before the race. We got in our wet to just try it out. And there's a pin to adjust it. And the pin like comes all the way out. And then he, I was hanging on to it. I was like, Johnny, can you hold this pin for a second while I adjust it? Well, three seconds later, he's like, oh, shit. I dropped the pin. And I'm like, well, I guess I'm not wearing this fucking leg now. So, so we found a flaw with the system. Did you so just get about- it right off? I mean, for the most part, I'd yeah, say. Absolutely. I, I think there's funny things we always argue too you know back to perspective what do you think is more challenging losing Mm -hmm. an arm or losing a leg my perspective is look these right here this leg this fake leg and this real one its job is to get me to point a to point b whether it's walking running climbing crawling point a to point b that's what the leg is but this in my mind this is your gateway to the world Mm -hmm. everything this is a two world this is a two-hand world Everything you do. I mean, before we have Bluetooth, talking on your phone, driving your car, video games, archery. Speaking of archery, this dude right here shoots a bow with his teeth. He pulls it with his teeth. Like, where I'm obviously not going to have that problem, but it's just uh, that's just the way I see it. But also, it's been it'll be 14 years in June since I lost my leg. I don't remember what it's like having two legs. And I think that's a good thing. So if you chop my arm off right now, I'd be like, what the fuck? Does that make sense? Like, and I think Johnny's perspective is obviously different because he's gone so many years missing his arm and both his legs. I like yeah, to but- ask, do you have phantom pain? Either one of you? Mm-hmm. I still get it once in a while. What is that like? It interests me so much because... You can't explain it. What is that like for you? In my case, it's kind of like if you make a fist and just hold it as tight as you can, 
Now try to do that for a day. Don't open it. Will be that it's like that sensation of numbness that like you just want to like open, stretch your fingers or move your wrist. You just gotta stay busy. Why do we do what we do? And I'm not talking about just events like on the daily basis because I guess on your pain, like you know that you measure pain. Like let me take that trick. Let me, let me take your mind away from that pain and breaks a finger. Same thing. If I'm gonna hurt, let me own it. So let me go outside and just go do a hundred squats and. Just go run and then I come back and I'm like, oh, my legs hurt. So kind of forget about your arm. On your pain, especially in circumstances where I don't think no many in the world are probably like pain free. Like everybody suffers from something like your bad back, crooked feet, whatever it is, you know. So like if you know that there is some sort of like pain or discomfort in your life, might as well then just own it. Find a bigger one, be the bully and be like, that one, that one doesn't bother me. So when you ask me about the arm, it's kind of like when I think about it, yeah, it feels like whatever, but like most of the time I'm so sore from some other dumb thing that I'm doing <laughs> that I forget about the arm. <laughs> it's like your arm hurts. I'm like, no, my legs are killing me. <laughs> you know? What are you doing today? Okay, what, is, uh, what is your future? What is your, what are your goals? I'm about to graduate college uh, with an undergrad in liberal arts and, and minor in counseling and human services. Tina, I will not use my degree. I've gotten what I want out of my education, learning how to listen, you know, problem solving. I would love to focus on fitness. I lost 40 pounds in almost two years and my options, I didn't realize that at the time it was, you, man, it catches up to you. It just caught up to me. One day I went and put on a suit and it didn't fit. And side note to that, my foot was always in pain. My, my, last leg. It was just like, I would get done a CrossFit in the morning at 11 AM. I'd have to go raise it and ice it. And I'm like, I can't keep living life like this. So I started losing weight because of that suit that didn't fit anymore. And slowly the pain dwindled away. So literally I'm thinking all these endurance events I've been doing all these years, because my other leg is just full of hardware, just beat up and all this, you know, all this bad stuff in it. But it was literally the weight that I was carrying extra on my body. That was causing me to like this. So I would love to focus somewhere on nutrition, be a nutrition coach and um, you know, maybe get CrossFit certified and be an instructor or even personal trainer, something along fitness and nutrition. Cause for myself, it's, it's not only helped me physically, but also mentally. And I, I love watching people. It's like, we do it in OEW already see people reach, reach their physical goals. And I think in maybe somebody's appearance or their diet and how they, stay healthy without putting junk in their body that's another level of achievement than just that that uh, metal at the end of a spartan ring do you travel with your cinder block and your chain i don't see it yes. yes i do and she's right while you ask about it oh, i was waiting for you to bring that up <laughs> well you know so like i talk i talk a lot about you know in my program i talk about three p's as human beings not just veterans Three P's we all need in our life. We must have a purpose. We have to have a passion. We must be part of something bigger than ourselves. You heard us say these words throughout us this interview. Purpose, passion, part of something. And the rest of you define those three P's. Good attitude, because that dysfunctional veteran attitude, sorry guys out there, it's not going to get you anywhere in life. All right? A good attitude is going to move you forward. But also to move forward, you have to step out of your comfort zone. Take that leap. You say stagnant, it's not going to fall in your lap, man. You've got to push forward and do those things that are challenging myself it's education and this is why it takes me so long to get my degree because mm -hmm. it's difficult for me to be in a classroom but i realized 
man, I, I can't stay stagnant like this. Let me get this degree. Let me find another avenue and use this, the rest of what I have in my GI Bill to better myself and be a better human being and find those new passions in my life. Attitude, comfort zone, number three, it's community. We talked about OEW. There's so many charities out there for us that in the veteran community is what I mean by that for us, that being a part of a healthy community can help tackle not just the goals and the mission of that charity, but those relationships you build. It's, you're going to understand the way of adversity, the relationships you build, you don't have to carry it by yourself. You know, as human beings, we need those relationships in our lives. We saw how mental health just went on rampant during COVID. Stay in, don't make a living for your family. The people who are writing these laws, they're still getting a paycheck every freaking two weeks or every month, whatever they get paid, but you can't make a living. Mentally, what is that doing for you and your family? And just that human connection, you lose it. Relationships are so important. And that's what community does. Because when that weight of adversity gets heavy, you have to understand you don't have to carry it by yourself. And that's what Cindy represents right here, ladies and gentlemen. This is Cindy, the cinder block. And what she represents is the heavy weight of adversity that we all face. Guilt, stress, depression, anxiety. All that weight that holds you down, stops you from enjoying life. A lot of our OCAs in Operation During World, they'll take Cindy out on courses with us. She has a she's name. A People ask me, why do you name her Cindy? I'm like, do I have to explain it? Cindy, cinder block, <laughs> you know? But hey, goes over people's heads, I guess. But when we take her out with us as a team, as a community, as a society, we all carry this together. It gets pretty heavy. I'll pass her off to Johnny. And look at that, he's even... Well, Earl, do you have to pay extra for your luggage to bring her with you? Oh, no. That's why I drive everywhere. Okay. <laughs> what I do is like, I use her in my program as a speaker. And if we bring her on events, I'll go to Home Depot and create one for like $9. All right. Like, I was really not a lot. I thought maybe I was my next question is just, do you have Cindy's all over the country? You know, you have a girl yep. in every state. <laughs> Pretty much. <laughs> does Johnny keep no. one for you? <laughs> I have one, but he's he's afraid of her. Oh. I found her when I was uh, diving. Remember the one that is covered like in coral reef, like we'll cut you. Yeah, that's like I, that's, have, I found a center block in the ocean. That's <laughs> like a that one that he has. We should have brought that one up here. Um, that one, it's like a it's like a mace from the medieval times, man, with all the shells sticking out of it. Like, fuck, I don't want to carry that. <laughs> that's the real deal. She's someone you don't want to mess with. Yeah, that's the Latina Cynthia. <laughs> She'll cut you. Donnie, what are you up to today? What are your goals? Oh, well, you're probably publicly, probably the first one. Well, no, big challenge. I told you, like, I raised my kids. You have to do what you have to do. I don't know if uh, I was trying to inspire them or it was too cheap for babysitters, but they were six, seven years old tackling Spartan races. I mean, like, I think I had them doing 20 matters when they were both below 10 years. You remember in Washington, they're sleeping on the sidewalks, just passed out <laughs> for kids. So I'm always like one of those dads, like, shut up, keep going. You know, like you don't quit. You don't, you just don't quit. So now I have teenagers and not oh, too long those ago, are hard. I have three of them. Mm-hmm. Got two. So like not too long ago, the conversation arise. I forgot what I was telling them to do. And I was like, you know, we don't quit around here. And he was like, well, you quit college. Oh my God. Like, so it's like one of those kind of like, you know, there's a difference between don't talk back and that is a fact. And I'm like, you know what? And I'm going to go back for whatever. I'm trying to like at least knock out some of the basics. And, um, you know, like I, 
I want to say I reached, but I accomplished a lot of my uh, physical goals and everything. That's been like the one thing I told you, like leaving the military, it literally handed me my ass. Like I, I, I didn't know it was possible to fail every class. I did it. <laughs> like I did it. I, I felt everywhere. I felt launched, you know, like everything. <laughs> Everything. I thought you were going <laughs> to say that was the one that you passed. My mind just wasn't there. It's another thing. I mean, I was, I'm not the same who I was 20 years ago and have more interest in life. Like, it's kind of like hard to like even like getting out of the military or like even people that hasn't gone to a military, like 18 years old, trying to decide, well, this is what I want to do the rest of my life. And I'm not saying I'm doing it for a career, but at least there is a lot more fields that interest me right now. Do I dare ask, because this seems to be a big thing, if either one of you want to write a book? Oh, absolutely. I've got offers, but I'm not, I'm not there yet. I need to do more. I, if anything, I want to show people the mental aspect. Like, yeah, it's cool running marathons and all that stuff, but I think the mental adversity, it's where I'm still learning and I'm still growing as a person. I thought I had everything figured out until last time I talked to you, you know, the struggles I was facing with then. And then I, I just realized, fuck, I am not done yet. Mm-hmm. I am not friggin' done yet. I feel like how many podcasts I've done, how many documentaries I've been in with just my story of losing my leg and losing my brother. But like, I feel like there's still so much more I have to learn. I'm only 38 years old. So same thing. Um, you know, I usually when I see people that have a portrait tattoo of their kid and their body, like I always ask the same question. It's like, how do you choose the moment when it's like, this is what I want to remember him for the rest of my life, you know? Um, it's the same thing like about the book. Like, you know, my views today are not the same views that I had three years ago. The conversation that we had, you actually told me that one. Um, I dealt with a lot through my separation. I honestly, as I told you, through the pain pills and all the stuff, I wasn't in the best place when I had my kids. Neither was the mom and in an ideal world, I would want her to like strive forward. For eight years, I fought in court because it's kind of hard getting custody of two kids. And the you know, first day in court, it's kind of like, well, he's disabled. How's he going to take care of two kids? So like, this was an uphill battle that was totally worth it. For the longest, I was full of hate towards the system because, you know, I'm a guy. If I was a girl, like, you know, like I wouldn't even have to pay for an attorney, blah, blah, blah. The system is designed a certain way because I'm not going to say I'm the exception because there's many exceptional dads out there. But it's a certain way because of what so many women have gone through side to protect them. I learned that not too long ago. I also learned the fact that when uh, my kids always spoke to their mom, they did it with love. You know, like part of me, like back then, was angry because I'm like, yo, if I'm angry and you're in my team, you should be angry. But not, you know, that's my problems. That's their mom. So I'm still not done growing. I mean, like I'm not even close to be done growing. And to think about writing today, I'm afraid that five year five years from today, me is gonna look at it and pull out a sharpie and start, you know, red circling like this is incorrect, this is incorrect. Will I ever be Ray? I don't know. But like I'm definitely still learning a lot. The older we get, the more we know, the more we know we don't know, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Yep. Is there anything about veterans? that people should know that they don't? Not everything mentally is ties in with post-traumatic stress. Mm-hmm. Huge misconception. Oh, you're in Iraq and you're having a bad day? Well, this be your PTSD. 
You got to stop that society. You got to stop that. Everybody has bad days, whether you served or not. And to our veterans out there, I want to say that to them is, look, if you are struggling, you may think, because I learned this myself, to be totally honest with you. I'm now tapping into stuff recently, since the last time I talked to you three months ago, I started tapping into things that happened way before I even joined the military that I never thought was an issue up here, but it's helped me get into my subconscious and I'm like, wow, I am doing stuff and saying things to people that I love that are harmful. And it just like comes out and I'm like, I don't want to do this. And it, it's, it's tying me in a certain, and I'm not about here to talk about it publicly, but it really give me a whole mindset. Look, I could talk about losing my leg all day. I, I remember everything that happened, but it doesn't control my life. I don't know if that's post-traumatic stress or not, but it's, it's like, I could listen to fireworks and be fine. I could, you know, see uh, somebody's mangled legs after a car accident and be fine. Not thinking of mine. I could see body bags and be fine. You know, it, it doesn't phase me. Like I, I'm okay. But what helped me get there was working at it. And I think it's like I said before, we're always growing. Now I'm working on the stuff that I never realized was a problem. But I know there was a certain way where I saw how I was acting. And I'm like, man, I don't want to be that way anymore. If there's ever a relationship down the road or kids, whatever it may be, I don't want to be that person. Try to tap in that subconscious part of my mind and fix that. And I think when we, when society always says, post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress, post-traumatic stress, that I think veterans just automatically think they have post-traumatic stress when they're, ha- when they're struggling with something. And it's, I, I, an organization reached out to me asking, hey, do you want us to work with you? And I'm like, oh, I'm pretty, that what they're offering me, I, I wasn't really interested in. And then they said to me, this person does not know who I am. It's my first time ever talking to them. And they just said, we could help you with your post-traumatic stress. And I was like, so what makes you think I have post-traumatic stress? because of Hollywood shit, I lost my leg in Afghanistan. We're all of a sudden we're doctors and we just assume, and we need to get rid of that because it's only, it becomes stereotypical that I think some veteran, well, I'm only saying this because I've seen it. Some veterans just automatically think that post-traumatic stress. Are you okay with people considering you as heroes? You know, I Can think- I just stop you for a second, Earl? I just want to stop you for a sec, you and Johnny. Okay. Because when I look at both of you, I hope this isn't offensive, but I see you as heroes. And I think what I try to put into your heads when I talk to you is that less than 1% of our population serves in the military. Less than 1% of you say, I'm going to go out And I am going to keep it safe for the rest of you. I am going to go and do these horrific things, see these horrific things, so you don't have to. I'm going to do this so that you as a mother can feel safe as you put your kids to bed every night. And I know this is what makes you guys so special. And I hope it's okay if I tell you this. What makes you special? is that you think that everyone can do it. And I'm here to tell you that not 
everybody can do it. And I know you don't want that to be what you are labeled for your life, Earl. And I'm assuming you as well, Johnny. But I want you to know that it is, it means a great deal to me and to other people that you have sacrificed such a great deal. And I'm not talking your leg or your arm even, but just the time away from your family, a time you're in a very foreign land, that you would do that so that I don't have to. And I hope that there's a part of you that can understand that. And that where maybe it's not as offensive or you, I I hope that you can take that for what it is and know that there are people like me who, as you can see, it makes me emotional. And I hope you don't think that this is cheesy or because I know it probably is. It's not. And I'm I'm sorry for what I'm going to say. I really appreciate it. And if that's the title because of today's actions, I will be honored to accept it. I still would disagree. And I'm like, no, that's not me. But I'm very thankful. What I think is necessary, and this is like even for like the owner, the the, the good of the, the veteran community, is to burst the bubble and treat each one as an individual. Because the fact is that in the military and post-military, like, like this veteran community, I have met some of the most amazing people in the world. But I have also met some of the worst, you know? they happen to share the uniform. So like when you generalize it into the vet or anyone generalize it into a veteran community, kind of like loses something. Like, I mean, like we're very lucky, lucky that we live in an era where the VA hospital and I'm in my bad place and I'm like hating life. This is after my uh, attempt to suicide and a Vietnam veteran, because I'm rambling, told me to shut up. So I'm like, oh my God, I'm gonna punch this old man in the face. And what he told me that day is like, when I said I sign somebody, thank you for your service. When I said I sign somebody, bought you a meal or something like that. And I just stood quiet because of what they had to endure. You know, like nowadays, because of what happened in the past, everyone is welcome. And like, that is a great thing. But I think people need to be more accountable is for what you do today. What you, what did you choose to do today when you woke up? You know, that's what like definitely like will make you a hero for the day or, or not. You know, like it's not a title like, well, I served 15 years ago. You know, therefore, I'm above somebody else. The truth right. is, right. I, I tell you, like, I served the military because uh, I just like, didn't really have a home. But, you know, my mom and dad were somewhere else. I was raised by my grandmother. And some little angry voice inside of me wanted to jump out of planes and shoot people in the face. You know, like, if I would have had any <laughs> other way, I probably I watched plenty of movies. I would have went to college and, you know, like, had a blast. Like a lot of people that I know also, like, you know, they come from generations in the military. So that we're not all cut from the same cloth and more importantly is why we choose to do every day you know those are the actions that define who you are it, I, it is a very heavy title <laughs> i feel that uh you know i no i don't think i'm a hero at all like geez uh but if somebody wants to say it i take it with a grain of salt because you know 30 years or 30 like 50 years ago that generation of veterans and what they went through that is a lot different than what we're going through right i mean 9 11 happened and every single person who once wore a uniform is is a hero you're a hero you're a hero you're a hero and i agree with johnny 
I met some of the worst people in the military. It's true, man. I mean, it's not that hard to be an infantryman. It's it's uh, it's um, people do it and then they get this uniform and they flex like they're better than other people because they did a job that, and I understand there's such a low percentage of people who join now, but if they're doing it for ego reasons, then that ego is going to continue to drive forward when they get out of the military. And that's where the Uncle Rico shit starts. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? It's like, and it's like they feed on it. And it, this generation, our, our society now, puts us on such a pedestal. And I think that's why you see so many of it. Where 50 years ago, they were ashamed of being, you know, wearing their uniform or saying they're a Vietnam veteran or just serving the military because how society would treat them. It's like law enforcement. Today's law enforcement, I feel like society's treating them like 50 years ago's Vietnam veteran. Like, I truly believe that. It's like, mm-hmm. uh, we look at Jeremy Charlotte, We look at Drew Stokes. Two people who were just cops who weren't pulling, they didn't pull anybody over. They didn't, it wasn't a traffic stop. They weren't entering a house. They were just in a cruiser in a parking lot in uniform and they were targeted because they're in uniform. You know, and it's it's that, but, but with that being said, that's what the Vietnam veteran kind of went through somewhat 50 years ago. So if somebody wants to call me a hero for them, I'll take that. Because I look at them as heroes. Hey, we at least had body armor over there, okay? Mm-hmm. And it's something like, honestly, is not coming from the civilian side or some military. It's like veterans are taking advantage of the system. Like, you know, like I think the claims for the VA for PTSD have exceeded the 600,000 during the global war on terrorism. Um, the funny part is that the numbers show that 900 or 800 something thousand troops deployed over the past 20 years. You know, many of them have multiple deployments. A small percentage, even out of that, are the people that leave the wire, that go outside, that go into the patrols, that encounter IDs, that are encountering, so the numbers don't match. It's kind of like, it's associated. So like you serve in the military today, you must have the PTSD. No, you know, like, but to a VA and there's this questionnaire because they're trying to not make the same mistakes that were made during Vietnam and people are taking advantage of it. I'm like, did you ever discharge your firearm? I'm like, hell yeah, loved it. You know, like, how am I going to say that? You know, like, but that, that is the trigger my PTSD because I use the tool that I chose of my profession. I was never drafted to go into the military. I was never forced to go into the infantry. I fought really hard for that spot to get in there. For everything that I ever did, like, you know, like I had to go above and beyond their requirements to be able to get there. So it doesn't make sense. It's kind of like you ask for these and, you know, you fight hard to get. And then like, how is it that pulling the trigger? The claims right now are unreal. Like um, there's a group on Facebook that will get screenshots once in a while. It's like a veteran community of how they're helping each other into getting a hundred percent and what questions you, sh- you should answer and ask or whatever to be able to accomplish that. It's, it's ridiculous. It's like, it's, I, I don't even know what to say. You I know, think where... there's a better, and this is where I, I feel like I bring my program. I try to put my program out there to people is to understand that, like, don't let your whole goal in life getting that 100%. What do you do? That's not going to fulfill yourself. Oh, cool. You get a bigger paycheck, whatever. But 60 years from now, 70 years from now, 80 years from now, you're on your deathbed. And somebody comes to you and says, what did you do with your life? And then they say, I went to Iraq. Okay. What about all that other time in between? What else did you do? Oh, I was a Marine. I'm like, cool, dude. 
what back in uh you know it's now the year 2079 that was 50 years ago so what else did you do and I, I want veterans to understand, like, you can't be sitting there trying to just get that bigger paychecks for the VA, maybe getting out there grinding, maybe out, you know, something that I learned, you know, I, I talk about my program, you don't need a uniform to serve your country. And I feel like what, working for charities, building those relationships, trying to give not growth just for myself, but the people we're mentoring. Because I feel like that's, you know, it, it, it comes back to like my speaking. I said before, I get more out of this than they do. This line of work, I feel like I get more out of it as well. It's given me that purpose once again. And I, I want our veterans out there and our former Armed Forces Service members to get out there and find those three Ps. Find that purpose, develop that passion, be once again part of something bigger than yourself. Your whole life does not have to be combat boots and rifles. Those days are done. Let's find something new. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I can say, I hope that you will take this then is I am grateful for your service for that time that you were actively serving in the military. Thank you, Tina. I appreciate it. I want to know when your next Spartan race or other race is coming up. I think California. I'm trying to get away from bro. He's always at my house. He never arrives here. So I'm moving to California. Make sure you get a room with our house with one less room. So he has no I know. to stay. Just sleep in my truck. You know? Yeah. And then he goes like, no, this is a race in California. Mm. Yeah. We have a, we have a race um, in, in California. Johnny's going to be heading out there. Who I mentioned before, Rick Colbert, but we talked about, he lives out there. One of our other teammates, Norby Lara, he's, mm-hmm. He's Johnny's glove buddy, meaning he lost his other arm. <laughs> so between the two of you, you have the perfect set of gloves? Yes, we should always share gloves. Every time I see him, I say all the left ones that I have in there, Brania. <laughs> so what we have um, is a, a Spartan race out there in L.A. Dodgers Stadium uh, in July. And we're not running with OEW or the Oscar Mike Foundation. No, nothing like that. We're just getting out there to go have a good time, which... Honestly, is a very important part of, part of self-care. Like a lot of the times that we have done it, we actually ran out few events that have nothing to do with organizations. Sometimes when we're in uniform, you know, like one of the main things I remember going through Indoc and everything, and like, try to look down because you're just dying. And it's like, keep your head up. You never know who's watching. Some people... I told not to like use colorful words because I like to curse a lot. So like it's our behavior. So like once in a while is healthy and it's great just to put uniforms behind, to put all flags, to put everything, right. go out there and they just touch Earl's butt in the corner, you know, and just have a blast. If no responsibility. You, you still have no one hand, you can do that. Yeah. <laughs> so, long as not three fingers. My comfort <laughs> I prefer four. Where can we follow you on social media? If you want um, us to. Yeah, absolutely. My my Instagram handle is just my name, Earl Granville. Um, I have a website, earlgranville.org. And uh, like every other human being, I have a Facebook as well. It's facebook.com slash Granville Earl. Only fans coming soon. <laughs> Amputee edition. Woo, baby. Let's <laughs> um, just Instagram is uh, lopez.oew. That's uh, for Operation During Warrior. All right. My last question, gentlemen, what does America mean to you? 
opportunity. You know, but you got to work hard. I feel like, um, but because it gives you an opportunity to work hard, less government in our lives means more freedom to make decisions, the best decisions for you and your family. And I think that's very important. You know, we all, we all hear the watered down words of like America, freedom, independence, but you know, they're watered down because they are the truth. In reality, I mean, I, I feel like anyway, this is controversial and I don't care. We saw a situation with COVID where these politicians writing the laws are telling you, you can't make a living where they're still getting a paycheck. And society just jumped on with the politicians saying, you're being selfish. I guarantee it, all those people who are saying you're being selfish for trying to make a living, they had those essential jobs that were still getting, putting money in their pocket and providing for their families. So, and so who's the selfish one here? But that where I feel like is the exact opposite of what this country is about. This wasn't the Black Plague. This was a flu strand. And if you want to roll the dice and make a living for your family, you should be able to do that. But that's what America's about is I feel like that the opposite of how that was controlled. Give us independence and less government in our lives to do what we have to do to provide for not just us, but our families and our friends. Well, to me, I think it's endless opportunities. To be honest, and this is something that I heard from uh, Derek Carver, he's above uh, uh, the knee amputee, was formerly the world's strongest man. So like, you know, losing a leg sucks, you know? But if I'm gonna be missing a leg, I'd rather be in America because like right here, the opportunities are for all of us. Like, you know, we have, Kinda like you've seen like in Colombia, the army, like when they're missing their legs, it's like, there's no accommodations. There is no nothing like right here, despite of whatever injuries that we have or whatever you go through, you have the same opportunity as everyone else. You just gotta go get it. I love it. Thank you for sharing your American story with us, Earl and Johnny. It's been an absolute pleasure. Awesome. Thank you, Tina, so much. Thank you for listening to Johnny and Earl's American story. Be sure to check the show notes to find links to their social media accounts. You don't want to miss one single episode of the We the People, Our American Story podcast. You need to subscribe. Go to www.wethepeopleouramericanstory.com. Find your favorite platform on the top right corner and click on that to subscribe. Next week, my guest is Nicholas Clark. His story is outrageous including his father cooking drugs underneath the trailer where the family lived. We the People, Our American Story, the podcast for Americans who love America.